All right, everybody. Good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Did y'all have a great Thanksgiving? Yeah. Last week I taught on thanks living. Are we living it out? Fantastic. Well, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. And um, we're in between series. We just finished a series uh, on uh, when you pray. And prior to that, we did about, I don't know, 30 weeks on the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit and living in the Spirit and all those kind of things. And, and we're kind of in between. And so today, uh, we're going to sort of take a pause here. And one of the things I love to do when I study the Bible, there's something about the parables that just draw you in. And the more you study them, the deeper they go. And they're incredible stories. So we're going to look at a parable today. And one of the things um, that I think is so incredible about God is he meets you where you are, Right? And I talk about it all the time. We all go through our lives and we, we think we have everything figured out and we think we got everything under control and we think we're the God of our lives and we're not even sure we need God. We may give him some lip service. We may ignore him, whatever. And then something happens in our life. And all of a sudden we begin to realize we're not as in control as we thought we were. And, and we begin trying to figure out what the answers are to life. And almost all of us left to our own accord have driven our lives into a ditch. And at some point, we walk into a place like this and we say, I wonder if God could be the answer to my issues. And so people come here from all walks of life and from all different backgrounds. And almost always, God combines the mess, the messenger, and the message. Often it's a message we've heard before. People have said, Jesus changed my life. But it never really resonated until the messenger showed up, which is usually a friend of ours who walks in the Holy Spirit. And then the message all of a sudden makes sense and the mess gets our attention. And it's incredible if you ask people, how did you come to know Christ? Usually if you listen, you'll hear, well, there's this person. There is this person who lived out a love I'd never seen before. There is a person that had peace like I'd never seen before. And I knew I wanted it. And I was at a point in my life when this was happening. And then all of a sudden they started sharing with me the truth and it sounded true for the first time. And I began to pursue. And so we're all like that. We all come here at different walks of life, different places in our spiritual journey, moving towards Jesus. And, and what happens is we, we start out thinking that we're gonna gain a bunch of knowledge about God. If I can just understand Jesus, then everything will make sense and then I'll decide to follow him. Because that's how we approach everything in life. If I just understand more, I'll seek with my head. And what happens is we begin to read these scriptures and all of a sudden we begin to fall in love with the writer and we don't understand it. We thought it was about learning about who he is and what he did, but we're having this encounter we can't explain. And that encounter begins to change who we are from the inside. We don't decide to become more loving or more compassionate. It just begins to happen. And we come back every week trying to figure out how we're being changed. And the more we surrender, the more the Holy Spirit changes us. And so we're here today because every one of us is in a spiritual journey towards deeper relationship with Christ. That's what this place is all about. If you take Jesus out of the equation, most of us have nothing in common. And we wouldn't be here together. But every one of us has been drawn by a relationship with God, with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of people out there who follow Jesus, but aren't really following him. You may have met a few. 
You know, that happened in Jesus's time too. He began to look out over the crowds and he was like, look, there's a lot of people following me, but they're not really following me. They're looking to see what I can do for them. They're looking for another wow miracle of fish and loaves. They're really not here for me. They're only here if they can get something from me. And Jesus gets to a point in his ministry where people are just following him saying, gimme, 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 gimme. They weren't really even interested in doing what he commanded. They were simply there for themselves. And he decided that he was going to turn their world upside down, leave behind false teachings of the world, and be transformed by the way he wants his followers to live. So as Jesus looks out over the crowd, he goes, look, some of these people truly follow me. Some of these people truly love me. Other people are just here, and we're going to separate it. He had to separate those who really wanted to know him from those who were just following him. And so he told his disciples, I know how I'm going to do that. From this point forward, I'm not going to speak clearly. I'm going to only teach in parables. I'm going to tell stories. And he said, I'll only teach in parables from this point forward. And the entire point of him teaching in parables was, if you really want to know, you'll stay there and study that. You'll figure it out. But if you're just going along and you want to hear a story, you'll hear a story. A parable is a short story with a huge message. Those who want to dig deeper find the deeper things of God. Those who really aren't interested will stay on the surface and miss everything. Because they really weren't following him anyway. Jesus used parables to sort out the crowd. And it worked. When he made this statement, there were so many people pushing in to try to get their miracle that he had to get in a boat and go offshore in a cove because a thousand people just in that town, everybody was coming because they all wanted to follow him. And at the end of his ministry, in the night after his crucifixions, when everybody gathered in the upper room, there were about 50 of them. He sorted through a lot. In this parable, we're going to find the separator. Parables are these simple stories, but they all have a really deep meaning. And almost every parable has one message. It's not five or six messages. It's one central biblical truth that God wants to make sure we don't miss. Now, here's the other thing. When God tells us in parables to do something, we can't do it. Almost every parable, I can't love like that. I can't reach out to somebody like that. I, I can't do that. And the answer is you're right, you can't. Only the Holy Spirit of God flowing through you can love people like that. Only the Holy Spirit of God flowing through you can do things. See, God doesn't need you to do all that stuff. He needs you to surrender so he can do it through you. Does that make sense? And so what happens is you and I can't naturally do what Jesus commands us to do in the parables. We have to have the faith to allow Jesus to work through us. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves doing what we never thought we could do. Parables force each of us to decide if we're really all in. They make us break through our fears and decide if we really want to trust God that he'll do what he promises. So let's go to Matthew 13, 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, 
Why do you speak to them in parables? How do you think he's going to answer this? I mean, he could say, when you see a question in the Bible, just stop right there and say, what do you expect to be next? Well, he could have said, well, here, look, I'm dealing with populations of people who are illiterate. They're not going to be able to write down or remember. I'm going to tell them stories so the pictures in their mind will help them remember what I'm going to teach them. Maybe he'd say that. Maybe he would say, well, I teach in parables because I love stories. I'm a storyteller. I'm a better storyteller than I am a teacher. He might say that. But let's look at what he does say. He answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Spend some time thinking about that verse. What's he saying? He's saying there are secrets in heaven. Secrets from the throne of God. Given to some people, but not others. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he'll have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's why I speak to them in parables. Great. <laughs> Thanks for explaining that one. You speak to them in parables so that what they have will be taken, what they don't have. Uh, okay. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You'll see but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. In other words, they're, they're not following me. They're not hearing what I'm saying. They're not seeing what I'm really teaching them. They're not turning from their ways. They're trying to add me to what they already want to do. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What Jesus is saying is you're living in the midst of some incredible prophecy. People thousands of years ago would have killed, not killed, but would have killed to see what you're seeing. To see the things promised in the future coming true in their lives. You're living it right now. He's telling them you're in the midst of major league prophecy. And then he says, we distribute truths to those who understand what we've already taught. In other words, if I give you some truth and you ignore it, why would I give you more truth? If I give you some understanding and you ignore it, why would I give you deeper understanding? Those who accept the truth that Jesus teaches will be given more truths to understand. If they accept what they receive, Jesus is telling his disciples, they're called Talmudim, he's telling his disciples, doses of truth force them to get to the root of the issues in their lives. You see, one of the challenges that Jesus knows we have is if we embrace a truth, that truth has to apply to us, not everybody else. And when we begin to embrace a truth, we begin to see ourselves and we begin to realize that we have things to confess. We have changes to make. We have a higher road to take. We have a more desperate need for Christ to change us. Each dose of truth that we receive and embrace forces us 
to shed something in us, to get rid of something, to remove a part of us that is not from Jesus or of Jesus. Jesus uses his truth and the parables to cut away at things in our heart that don't please him. He goes deeper and deeper into our motives and into our thoughts and into our true beliefs. And then he exposes us so we can see who we really are. The truth is that Jesus reveals in the parables and exposes what's in our true heart. When we see and hear the stories of other people, we can't help but go, whoa, which one am I? Where am I in this story? You see, it's with our heart that followers follow Jesus. It's with our heart that true followers hear. It's with our heart that true followers see, and it's with our heart that we really understand. Amen. Those who are following Jesus with all their heart get to the parables, they understand them, and they apply them. They're revealed deeper truth because the Holy Spirit teaches all things. Those who are following with their head never see or reject the message of the parables. You see, because the parables reveal our true self. They force us to deal with who we really are. And still at our core, we are fallen people. We started out spiritual, um, human people trying to have a spiritual experience, and now we are spiritual beings having a human experience. But we're still having a human experience. We live in a fallen world. We have flesh desires. We're in that battle. But our hearts are pursuing something. Jesus is always talking about, where's your heart going? Stop looking at your actions. Where's your heart going? Because the world's full of two people, someone whose heart's going towards God and somebody who's not. That's just it. You're either pursuing God with it. You may not succeed at what you want to do. You may fail at times and have to get and try again. But the question isn't, did you succeed? The question is, which way is your heart going? Today, we're going to allow Jesus to reveal more of ourselves by looking at one of the most famous parables in the Bible. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this introduction tells us a lot. Every word in a parable came straight from Jesus, and it's there for a reason. A lawyer. Don't think of Perry Mason or Jack McCoy. This is an expert in religious Jewish law. Now note what he does. Everything in the Bible, every detail is important. When rabbis taught, they almost always sat down. To stand up is a power position of authority. Okay? We're told specifically that this lawyer stood up. And he stood up to put Jesus to the test. He addresses Jesus as teacher, not rabbi, not master, not lord, certainly not lawyer. He uses a very common term, teacher. He's an expert in religious law. But his word choice here implies he thinks Jesus is nowhere near his level of experience. On the surface, his question seems to be a personal one. Not threatening. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? His question is based on Jewish law. 
You see, those who lived prior to Jesus were saved based on their faith that one day the Messiah would come. They couldn't yet believe in Jesus as their Savior because he wasn't here yet. Their salvation was based on did they trust God and believe the truth that he was coming. From the crucifixion forward, salvation's based on faith that Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah, that he died and he rose again for our sins. Everyone, however, every person's faith is based on their faith in Jesus or their faith in the Messiah, either to come or has come. Some looking forward, some looking back in the past. A lawyer would have known the prophecies. Let me read a couple of them to you. Psalm 37, turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Remember the lawyer's question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how do I know I'm the righteous one? Daniel said this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who lived prior to Jesus knew the prophecies going forward. As a professor of Jewish law, his questions were reasonable. He's essentially asking Jesus, what do I need to do to share in the resurrection of the righteous? When that future blessing comes, how can I be sure that I'll receive it? Jesus is a rabbi. A rabbi with the ability to speak with authority. He is a great teacher, and he teaches in a typical rabbinical style. We're going to talk about that for a minute. You see, great teachers don't just tell you the answers. You ever notice that? People that are really great teachers, they just don't tell you the answers. They know the answers, but great teachers lead you on a journey of discovery so you will own the answers. Does that make sense? They often answer your question with a question, and it drives people crazy. Rabbis do this all the time. It's how they teach. Sometimes to see where you are, sometimes to see how badly you want to know. More often, because when the truth is personally sought after, embraced, and discovered, you remember it. When it's just told to you, you forget it. I spend a lot of time teaching medical students and residents and nurses, and I can tell them the answer, but the wonder of discovery is what makes it stick. They don't take my word for it. They've experienced it. They found the answer based on the questions that I led them through. So Jesus doesn't just answer the question. He almost always asks a clarifying question and then a probing question. Let me show you. He said to them, what is written in the law? Clarifying question. How do you read it? Probing question. Jesus does this all the time. The clarifying question, what is written in the law? This is a softball for the Jewish leader, for an expert in the law. What the law says is very clear. We can look it up if we need to. That's how all Bible study starts. What does God say in his word? But then Jesus asks a probing question. 
A question that moves beyond just the information you're going to find in the text. A question that moves towards the heart of the real issue. But then the probing question, how do you read this? It drives not only to knowledge, knowledge of what the word says, but also understanding and application. How do you read it? And then eventually, how does it read you? You ever met someone who's an expert in something? They know everything about a topic. They can tell everybody else what to do, but they cannot seem to apply that truth to themselves. Like a cancer doctor who chain smokes. Our pride and arrogance can lead us to think that we're better than others, that we're more knowledgeable than others, and yet others have applied lessons that we have not. Jesus is clarifying here this, where this law expert stands. He's about to learn what's in his heart. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. There's the answer. That's the answer, straight out of the text. He's a scholar. He knows the answer. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Okay. Excellent. Here's your answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, when rabbis teach, as I said, they always do it with a series of questions. Discover the truth. You know that the lesson is over when the rabbi stops asking questions. Seriously, that's how it works. They ask a question, you answer it. They ask another question, you answer it. They ask another question, you answer it. They ask another question, you answer it. And when they make a statement, the lesson's done. He's given an answer. It wasn't a question. Go do that. Lesson done. We're finished. How do you inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and then love others as yourself. Done, answered, check. You see, their salvation is based on the same thing ours in, faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone. Any of us who truly love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbors as ourselves will surrender to the truth of God's word because we can't do it without God. You can't achieve that without God. It's impossible. We're saved through our faith and trust in Jesus. And we trust in Jesus for eternal life. Now, the lawyer knew the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what to do, but have you done it? See, religious people know what they should do. But they struggle actually doing it. Unfruitful fig trees, if you will. They look like they should produce fruit, but they're not producing fruit. Now remember, Jesus is using a parable to sift through the crowd. Now here's what Jesus knew that the lawyer did not. Please don't miss this. If you truly love the Lord, Jesus knows. If you have a relationship that consumes everything, your heart, your soul, your mind. If, if that's actually been ex, your experience, you have been completely transformed, embodied, embraced by God and the Holy Spirit. You can't help but love other people. 
It's going to flow out of you. The evidence of a transformed life, the evidence of a life of people who are loved and loving Jesus is that they're changed people. They love God with everything and they love other people just like they love themselves. That's what he knows. If you truly do those things, you are saved because you can't do them without the Holy Spirit. You see, nobody on earth inherently wants to love our neighbor as ourselves. Nobody. It doesn't come from us. It's part of our sin nature. The only way you can do it is if you have enough faith to let God do it. That's why Jesus says, do these things and you'll live. Because doing these things comes only from the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit's in you, you're already eternal. Your compassion and love for others is evidence of your deep love for God. If you want to know where someone stands with God, watch how they treat their neighbor. Okay, great lesson. But the lawyer's not finished yet. He moves on to cross-examination. No, no pun intended. He wants to justify himself, the scriptures say. It's not good enough that you say, I have it. I need to be the best. So he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Note the motive. Desiring to justify himself. In other words, I, I know I love some people, but how broad do I have to go here? I love my family. I love my closest friend. I love some of my Jewish brothers. What's the scope of this command exactly? Who is my neighbor? So the lawyer asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? The underlying question is sort of like, look, I know I'm to love my neighbors myself. I get it. I love my family that way. I'd give up anything for my kids. I love some of my friends that way. I, I guess I could love the Jewish people that way, maybe. But God, some of these people are despicable. You want me to love people who are despicable? Some are unworthy of my attention, much less my love. You, do you know who I am? You see, I'm, I'm a high-powered attorney. I'm important here on earth. You want me to love other people? Some don't deserve me even talking to them, much less loving them. There are pagans out there, God. There's Gentiles, Samaritans. They're diseased. They're our enemies. You judge them, God. I know you hate them like I do. See, the world's full of people I don't like, much less love. Jesus, who is my neighbor? Tell me it's just my family. And to answer that question, Jesus moves into the parable. Don't miss this. The parable is to answer this question. Who is my neighbor? Knowing who my neighbor is then allows me to decide and see myself whether I'm loving those people or not. You see, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not about somebody applying a bandage on the side of the road. The parable of the Good Samaritan is about knowing who your neighbor is and who you are in the story. Jesus replied, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the Jews of that time would go, yeah, I could see that. That happens all the time. That's a dangerous road. 
It'd be like us saying, hey, somebody's walking through Watts and they got beat up. Yeah, okay. That happens. Jews went to the temple from Jericho up to the temple. Okay? They traveled this road every time they had to go to the temple. And it's straight uphill. Have you ever been to Israel? It's straight uphill. And you go this winding road, and parts of that road go through canyons and crevices, and it's dark, and it's a great place to ambush people. And people going to the temple usually have money or goats or something that they're going to go sacrifice. So they have money. And so this guy is coming on this road. It'd be like us saying, well, you know, somebody's driving down I-75. But this isn't an ordinary road. As I said, it's treacherous. Now, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is only 15 miles. It's not very far. But Jericho's at sea level and Jerusalem's at 3,400 feet. So in 15 miles, you go straight up. It's a winding trail. It's not a safe road. There are caves along the road where people can hide. Travelers coming, as I said, have money. To make it worse, there were sections of the road that are literally dark in the middle of the day. The sun can't hit them because of the crevices in the mountains. Dark shadows. Some fell to death in those shadows. They'd be walking. There's a cliff falls 2,000 feet. This is a dangerous road, Jesus picks for his parable. Many believe that when David was fleeing Jerusalem, running from his son who wanted to kill him, that he penned the 23rd Psalm because of this road. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So Jesus begins the story. They're probably thinking, okay, we've been there and seen that. And then he immediately draws them into the familiar. Now you may be asking yourself, 15 miles, dangerous road, isn't there some other way to get to Jerusalem? I mean, would you want to travel that road? I mean, maybe we should go a different way. Makes sense, right? If you were in Galilee and you wanted to get to Jerusalem... The Jewish people would basically go from Galilee. Let's go ahead and put up the slide of the map. Okay, see Galilee up there at the top? And then you see Judea, Jerusalem down here, and you see the Jordan River. When people would travel through the, the desert, they typically tried to stay near a water source, right? So what they would do is they would go over to the Sea of Galilee, they head south. They'd get down to Jericho, and they'd take that 15-mile road up to Jericho. That's how they did it. Total trip is about 120 miles. They had to go to the feast three to four times a year. Think about that. They walk 120 miles. They go to the feast. They walk back home. They do it again. Last 15 miles took eight hours to climb. You want to know why Mary and Joseph were extra frustrated that Jesus stayed in the temple at age 12? They'd gone down the mountain. And then they had to turn around and go right back up. That's not good. Now, you may have noticed, looking at this map, that there might be a more direct route. Maybe you could just go straight from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. That makes sense. That's 90 miles. You could avoid the dangerous road. You could avoid the climb. No problem. Jewish people, however, would rather face robbers and death than step into Samaritan land. They hated the Samaritans. I mean, they literally hated them. Racism at its worst. They hated Samaritans. The Jews hated them, despised them. And one thing was clear to this lawyer. Whatever definition neighbor had, it can't include them. 
those half-breeds. You see, the reason they didn't like them was early on, these tribes intermingled when they weren't supposed to. And instead of going to Jerusalem, they set up their own mountain. And that's why the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman said, we worship God on this mountain. And when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us if that's okay or not. They hated them. So he continues. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Oh, good, a priest. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he went by on the other side. Okay, this is also a common scenario. Priests and Levites usually lived in Jericho. Jericho is cooler. It's the city of palms. It's the place people got their palm fronds for Palm Sunday. It's, it's a place. It's an oasis in the middle of the desert. They, they lived there. They were suburbs. And when their time came to serve in the temple, they would go up to Jerusalem and serve in the temple. And when their time was over, they'd go back down to Jericho. So he's going home. Now note that they both saw this injured man and they both passed by on the other side. Now I've heard people teach, oh, well, they didn't want to get unclean. They're going to the temple. Well, they're headed the wrong way. They're headed down, not up. Why did the chicken cross the road? It's right here in the Bible to keep from having to deal with a Samaritan man. It's just that simple. Bible answers everything. Two Jewish leaders, a priest and a Levite, what's the difference? Well, all priests are Levites. They come from the family of Levi, but not all Levites are priests. Okay? The tribe of Levi served in the temple. Most of them were priests, but not all of them. In any event, these two religious Jewish leaders who undoubtedly knew the law and who undoubtedly knew they were to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and spirit, and who knew that they were to love their neighbor as themselves, when it came to living that out, manifesting it into action, these two chickens crossed the road. Now, this would have been shocking to those listening. Jewish leaders, Jewish temple leaders didn't have compassion on an injured and potentially dying man. How could that be? Then you can almost hear the music begin to build in the background as Jesus continues his story. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan journeyed, came to where he was and saw him. Now a Jewish person would be thinking, Samaritan, probably coming back to get what he didn't get the first time when he beat him up and stole all that stuff. Probably coming back to kill him. He's probably the one that robbed him and beat him in the first place. That's what those people do. They're disgusting. Why, why is a Samaritan even traveling on our road? We don't go there. They shouldn't come here. That's what's going through their head. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus made the Samaritan the hero. That immediately would have alarmed his Jewish audience. 
This is not a Jewish man helping a Samaritan. This is a Samaritan helping a Jewish man who had been ignored by his fellow brothers. Note what Jesus says. Compassion is what moved him to action. See, oil and wine were expensive. They were helpful as antiseptics and wound swab. He used his animal as an ambulance. He, he took him to the inn. He stayed with him and cared for him. He gave him two denarii. That's two weeks of pay. Probably about two weeks at the hotel. He tells the innkeeper, you take care of him. Spend whatever you have to spend. Do whatever you do. I'll come back and pay you. The Samaritan loved those who hated him. He risked his own life. He spent his own money. He used up at least a full day. And as far as we can tell, he never received a single reward. His actions aren't logical. No one on earth logically wants to help their enemies. In our fallen state, we are survival of the fittest. We'll let you tolerate a few things, but don't start threatening me. Of all the possibilities that you can come up with when it comes to doing something to your enemies, mercy and compassion never seem to be the conclusion of fallen humans. No one born with a sin nature naturally comes to the idea of, I think I'll just love them. There's nothing on earth that can make you do that. There's nothing in you, in your fallen state, that makes you love somebody else like that. It doesn't happen. It's hard to wrap your mind around. And the reason is, it's not a mind thing. It's a heart thing. You never wrap your mind around things of the heart. If you don't want to love your enemies, then welcome to this world. That's where most people are living. Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Again, no more questions. Note the Jewish lawyer can't even get himself to say the Samaritan. He can't even get himself to say the Samaritan showed him mercy. Uh, the one that showed him mercy. If you ask most people what the story of the Good Samaritan is about, they'll tell you it's about taking care of people and strangers and seeing those that need help and helping them. And on the surface, that's a good answer. But it's not the truth that's in this passage. It's not the point. It's a point, not the point. Remember that Jesus uses the parables to show things to the disciples that are deeper spiritual truth. The question he's answering is, who is my neighbor? More specifically, who am I supposed to love as myself? The simple yet profound message of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that you're to love as yourself the most despicable person and people you can think of. And I think most of us would go, you know what? I don't have that kind of love in me. You see, there are people that have done some horrible things. There are people that have done horrible things to me. There are people who have done horrible things to children. There are people who have done horrible things to women. There are people who have done horrible things. I can't love them. I struggle loving the people I'm supposed to love. 
Jesus wants me to love everybody like he does. What, does he think I'm Jesus? Not only love them, but love them as much as I love myself. Think about what he's really teaching here. Think about the person you can't stand. It's okay, we're in church. Love everybody, don't like everybody, I get it. Think about them. Love them as yourself. That means when you pray, you pray the blessings that you want for yourself that God would give them to them. Huh. That God would give them blessing upon blessing, and when it happens, you'd celebrate it. Yet notice the command of Jesus. Go and do likewise. I can't. You want me to go and love people like that? I can't. Go and do likewise. Thus begins the separation. Those who are truly following Jesus will answer this question very differently than those who are hanging around just to see what God can give them next. Those who follow with their heads say there's nothing about this that I like. It goes against every fiber of my being, everything I've ever thought about. People who are despicable should not be loved and I'm not gonna do it. You guys are crazy, I'm out of here. But to those who truly love the Lord with all their heart, who are truly surrendering to what Jesus teaches, might say something like this. There's nothing about this that I like. It goes against every fiber of my being. It makes no sense to me. But Jesus, if you've commanded it, I'll do it. I don't have it in me to love my enemies. I can't make myself love them. But God, if you want to flow your love through me to them, I'll be your conduit. I'll do it. Because God, if you command it, you're going to accomplish it. I'll surrender to your will and your desire rather than my own. You see, it's only through surrender that we can allow God to do what he wants to do through us. As long as we're still trying to hold on to our beliefs, our prejudices, our racism, our hatred, God can't work through us. It's only when we surrender to his truth that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Paul understood it when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things may not be win a football game. It may be love the person that hates you. It may be loving your enemies. It may be loving the person who hurt you. It doesn't mean that what they did was wrong or not wrong or that there shouldn't be consequences. What it means is you do what Jesus did. You love the sinner and you hate the sin. It takes God's power to do what we would never do on our own. That's why it stands out. When you love somebody unconditionally with the love of God and people see that, they're drawn to it. Where does that come from? Look at her compassion. Look at at his love. Look at how they care for that person. I, I haven't seen, where does that come from? Why do they do that? You and I will never muster up that kind of love on our own. Bingo. It's the point of the parable. How do you know you have eternal life? When God's love flows through you to other people and you know you're being used by God. 
The kind of love it takes to love your enemies as yourself doesn't come from this world. It only comes from the throne of God. Supernatural. It's a groovy kind of love. And the only way you can love other people that way is if you first love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love him so much that it has to overflow through you to other people. It's compassion that drives everyone to action. When you see someone who has compassion on someone else, you know that they're being moved by God. Now, loving others the way we love ourselves is not something we do to earn God's favor. It's not brownie points. It's not, I'm going to go serve in the cafe because I'll get some brownie points with God or I'll feel good about what I did these holidays when I, when I spend all my time and money on myself. If I just go serve for an hour, maybe I'll feel better. It's not what it's about. We love other people as ourselves because we have received God's favor already. We're not trying to earn it. We're living it. We're doing it. Now, what the priest and the Levite saw moved their feet. Our parable says when they saw, they crossed to the other side. What the Samaritan saw moved his heart. Parable says when he saw the man, he was full of compassion. Compassion. A feeling of deep sympathy, a sorrow for another person who's been stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate their suffering. Compassion includes in it not only just an awareness of the problem, but a strong desire to actually fix it. Jesus once took his disciples to an orgy in Caesarea Philippi. He essentially told them, I didn't bring you here to show you how wrong this is. You already know that. I brought you here because I want you to do something about this. You see, my disciples aren't supposed to just walk around the world going, that's not good. That's not good. Oh, that's not good. No, you're supposed to do something. The love of God brings compassion into your life, and you have to act it out to other people. True disciples of Jesus allow God's compassion to flow through us. Let me give you quickly five key things about compassion. First of all, compassion is based on need, not worth. Compassion is based on need, not worth. The victim was just some man. We don't have any more details than that. Just Samaritan reached out to him because of who he, not because of who he was, because he was in need. For all we know, the victim could have been the king. The victim could have been a murderer. The victim could have been a prisoner escaped from Jerusalem. We don't know. He just said a man was walking and got attacked. We know nothing about this man. We don't know his race. We don't know his social status. We know nothing because it doesn't matter. Compassion is based on need, not somebody's worth. Second, Compassion feels something. We call the story the Good Samaritan. That phrase would never have been used in first century Jewish world. There were no Good Samaritans. 
When the Samaritan saw the victim, he was moved from deep inside his soul. He felt the pain of the other person. His heart churned inside him to the point that he couldn't pass by. He had to do something. Compassion always feels something. It stirs us. It troubles us. We can't rest until we actually go do something. It is our Popeye spinach moment. That's all I can stand. I can't stand anymore. I got to go do something. That's our third point. Compassion always moves you to do something. It's usually not convenient. Usually takes concentrated effort and Compassion for other people just doesn't happen. You have to allow it to happen. Next point, compassion always costs you something. It always costs something. It costs this man time, inconvenience, money, personal risk. A Samaritan carrying an injured body. Have you thought about that? A Samaritan in Judea carrying an injured Jewish person on a donkey somewhere else. It could have led to the assumption that he was the one who injured him. Picture it. He took great risk. He left money. He offered all the expenses without limitations. He did everything he could do to show compassion for this man, even putting himself at personal risk. Fifth thing, compassion reflects our relationship with God. The degree to which we love the Lord our God is reflected in our degree of compassion for other people. That's what Jesus is teaching. If you truly love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, spirit, you have to love other people. It'll flow out of you. Last thing is compassion always moves us to action. We can't just talk about it because we're feeling it and we have to fix the feeling. We may have some compassion for people we like, but we typically don't have compassion for those God said we should love. We all know John 3.16. Let me read to you 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. True love has an action to it. James says it this way. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit, and you see somebody who's poorly clothed or they're lacking in food, you don't get a pass either. You can't. You have compassion that comes straight from the throne of God. You've been placed there to care for the other person. You're to love others as you love yourself. In the cafe, just like in my workplace, there's a lack of God's love for each other. 
And Jesus is saying, fix it. Go love people. Love your enemies. There's not a single person you lock eyes with that Jesus didn't die for. There's nobody you lock eyes with that you're better than. People ask me a lot of times, how do y'all run the cafe? How can we not? How can we not? There are people who have needs. So the, the, the big idea of this small story is that those who have eternal life, those who truly love the Lord with everything they have, those who are truly surrendered to his plan, his agenda, and his mission can't help but love other people as they love themselves. And they know it doesn't come from them. God's love pours out through us and we can't stop it. We see the world with God's compassion. It moves our heart. Jesus says, if you really love others as much as you love yourself, then you've definitely been changed by the Father and you'll have eternal life because it's impossible to do that without first having had that experience. Your love and compassion for others is the fruit of the relationship you have with the Holy Spirit. It's impossible for you to be a true follower of Jesus and not develop compassion for other people. It just doesn't happen. You want to be just like your Savior? You surrender and follow his love and flow, let it flow through you. If you struggle loving other people, not liking them, loving them. I love a lot of people I don't really like. If deep in your heart you struggle to love other people and you're a spirit-filled believer, then there's something in your life, some sin, that is blocking you from allowing the Holy Spirit to flow through you. Because the desire of the Holy Spirit is to love people. So do you? Do you see them? I mean, really, we're going to walk around the holidays. We're going to see a lot of people. Do you really see them? The people. They're beat up. They're bruised. They're beaten down. They're lying on the side of your path every single day. They're interruptions on your way to something more important. People who desperately need to see Jesus' love in you. Maybe people you don't like. Maybe it's not the Samaritans. Maybe for you it's the rich people. Maybe it's the fancy cars. Maybe for you it's impressive addresses. Whoever God's put in your path. I know you see them, but do you see them with your heart? Some of the most spiritually miserable people I know live at some of the most incredible addresses in this city. Does your heart break for them? Can you see them the way God sees them? People ask me to describe our church, and I know it comes from being a doctor, but here's what I always tell them. When I look at our church and I look out over the world, I see people come through these doors. And what I see when I pray are refugees leaving a war zone. You know, you've seen the picture where the refugees are just trying to hold on to what they have and they're coming up the road and there's explosions behind them and they were victims of a war they may not have even caused and they don't know what's wrong. They just need safety and help and they need somebody to reach out to them and love them. They're refugees. 
And most people that you see every day are refugees from a spiritual battle they don't even know is going on. Satan has destroyed their marriage. Satan has destroyed their self-esteem. Satan has taken away their joy. Satan has done all these things in their lives. And they're just coming into these doors wondering, could there be a place for me? And can I find some hope? Because I've lost hope. They're refugees from a spiritual battle. Can you trade places with them? Can you allow God to let you love them like you love yourself? It's going to cost you something. Or are you just going to cross the road again? Get on with your life and your things. Walk past the people that God's put in your place. You want to know how close you are with Jesus? Jesus taught the look at the lawyer, look at those you love who you think are unlovable. You see, there's people here in Sarasota that need our help. Jesus said some of us will get it. Some of us will see them. Most will just walk by. Why does that happen? He tells us. So we end this. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears, they can barely hear, and with their eyes, they've closed. It's not that they can't see, they close them. They've chosen not to see. Hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And if they did, I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. If you see someone truly loving their neighbor, someone they don't know, loving them as they love themselves, I guarantee you they're a born-again follower of Jesus. Fruit of the Spirit is love. There's no other love like that on earth. If you can't find it in your heart to love the people Jesus already loves, ask God to show you what's wrong, because something's wrong. Then I challenge you, once you've confessed that sin, get busy loving people. God will love every person you encounter through you if you'll allow it. You see, the eyes of remnant see and hear. Those God placed in our path are not labels. They're not groups of problems. They're not groups of people. They're real faces, a lot of them. They didn't plan to end up this way. Satan took them there. Rescuing and caring for them, it's not easy. It's not safe. It's not logical. It's not pretty. It's not convenient. It's often not fun. It's not cheap. It's not clean. It's not appreciated. It's not rewarded, and it's not natural. Many initially don't want our help. They hate us for trying to help them. They're your next-door neighbor, your coworker, your family, your children, your ex, your friends some who are homeless, some who have homes but are heartless. Some are addicted to drugs, some are addicted to a drug that is themselves. Some are filthy on the outside, some people are filthy on the inside. Some are afraid of being judged, others are way too busy judging. Our sign out front says we're a group of messed up people and it's true. But here's the thing. Our hearts aren't dull. 
Our hearts are turned towards Jesus and we flow compassion out to people who come through these doors. Jesus died for you and he died for me and he died for each and every one of them. He loves you and me and he loves them just as much. He has them in his heart and we have his heart in us. Thus we notice them because he noticed us when we were filthy, when we were dirty, when we were sinful, when we were prideful and arrogant, when we were refugees from that very same spiritual battle, he saw us. We have to run to people because he does. We have compassion for them because he had compassion for them. We love them because he loved them. And we need to love them because we were just like them, imprisoned by sin and now freed by Christ. We must surrender to become just like him because that's what true disciples really do. How do I know I have eternal life? There's a love that flows through me that I can't understand and it flows to my enemies and it flows to everybody. And I know it's coming from God because I love him with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my spirit. That rabbi is how I know. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your parables. They're so deep and at the same time so simple. But God, if we could learn to love like you love, if we could learn to surrender enough to let you love through us, if we could get past ourselves and onto your agenda, God, we'd see incredible love. People would see Christ in us. Loving your enemies? That's got to get people's attention. And that's exactly what you knew. So God, help us to love this week. Help us to love as we go into the Christmas season. Help us to give up our needs and our wants and see the people that are hurting. Reach out to those who need our compassion. We may be the last glimpse of hope that somebody encounters. Help us to make sure they see you clearly when they see us. We love you. We thank you for your truth. God, please don't let us walk out of this room without applying your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh.